Amen and amen. That was absolutely wonderful. Thank you, those of you in the choir. Thank you, Dan, for serving us and blessing us that way. And isn't God good to give us the gift of music? You ever stop to realize that nearly a third of your Bible is written in poetic meter? God is a fan of poetry and music, and we are greatly blessed by that. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9 as we now return again, hopefully without any interruptions in the near future, to our study of Luke. Um, Last week we we paused to observe Reformation Sunday and look at the priesthood of the believer. And just prior to that, we'd been with Jesus through Luke's narration up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And today, we're not on a mountaintop experience, but in the valley. In fact, our text is a study in contrast, both within the text itself and in its relationship to the text that came before. So let's begin our time by reading Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 45. Luke chapter 9, 37 through 45. The notes are in the bulletin. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, How long am I to be with and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This morning, we'll be studying this passage, this supremacy of Christ and the disciples' failure. The absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ and the disciples' failure. And you'll notice, if we look back in Luke, that this section, starting back in 918, has been uninterrupted. Luke has narrated and given time connections. So in 918, it happened as he was praying alone, so we don't know how long after the last event that took place. And that's where he asked his disciples, who am I? And and they get it right. Peter speaking for them in verse 20, who do you say that I am? The Christ of God. He gets it. This is the Lord's anointed. This is the Messiah. And immediately, Jesus adds to that understanding, and for the first time in Luke's gospel, clearly indicates the sufferings of the Messiah, that Jesus understands this. And he said to them, verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed and on the third day raised. So he, he adds 
that Peter's understanding. Yes, he is the Christ of God, but knowing that, that Peter would assume that meant all the glory and all the honor and all the praise and all the power and all the rule that would rightly come at the second coming when Jesus returns to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Jesus explains that, yes, he is the Lord's Christ, but he is a Christ, the Messiah, who has come to suffer, to die even. And as we shall see, these are categories and concepts that the disciples would not and could not wrap their heads around. And following closely on the heels of this new developed understanding of a suffering Christ, Jesus gives them a further understanding of what it means to be his followers because the student is not greater than the teacher, but after they're fully taught, they will be like their teacher. Jesus said as much in the Sermon on the Plain. He goes on in verse 23 to tell them what that means for them. If the Messiah is going to suffer, if the Messiah is going to die, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. So Jesus makes it clear there will be a glory and there will be a kingdom and there will be rule. And all the things the disciples expect and associate with the Messiah are true when he comes again. But for now, there is suffering for the Messiah. For now, there is rejection for the Messiah. For now, there is death for the Messiah. And all those things also, for now, hold true to his disciples. And then, not breaking the narration in verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings. And then we go up on the mountain, and we spent two weeks looking at the transfiguration, but Luke has linked that account with what just came before. Part of that, in fact, is to make it clear that Jesus' prediction in verse 27, that I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, was fulfilled when Peter, James, and John beheld that foretaste, that sneak peek, that trailer of the kingdom and its glory when Christ was glorified. And the Father spoke, giving public testimony to the identity of his Son. This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And we studied how each of those three sayings linked to an Old Testament thread. This is my Son. That's the language of the Davidic covenant. Jesus is the Davidic king whom Psalm 2 speaks of. I'll be a father to him and he shall be a son. This is my chosen one. That linked with the suffering servant passages in Isaiah culminating in Isaiah 53, speaking of the one who was wounded and pierced and crushed for our transgressions. And then finally in saying, listen to him, the father identifies this is at last the prophet like Moses, spoken of in Deuteronomy 18. Moses himself there to witness this, Elijah there to witness this. And we saw the glory of the risen Christ. Well, Luke makes it clear that what happens next is directly linked on the next day. And so there are massive contrasts between where we've just been on the mountaintop and the valley. On the mountaintop, heaven drew near to earth. In the valley, we see the powers of hell. On the mountaintop, a pleased father rejoices over his son. In the valley, a grieved and suffering father cries out over the shame and the suffering of his son. 
On the mountaintop, a firstborn receives glory. An only child receives praise and honor. In the valley, a first and only son is being racked with pain. On the mountaintop, we see the glory of God. And yet in the valley, this passage um, in verse 43, we see also the glory of God. God is the God of the mountaintop. God is the God of the valley. There is a glory on the mountain and there is a glory in the valley. And Jesus comes down with his disciples. And there's a further contrast in this passage. We will see, we do see the supremacy of Christ over the powers of hell. Jesus' ability to heal. But we see the disciples' failure. And that is meant to be put in stark contrast. In fact, as Luke gives these next few paragraphs in the text leading up to the hinge point in Luke. The hinge point, remember, is verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In every single example between our text here and there, we see further failure, misunderstanding on the disciples' part. So Christ has been lifted up and shown to be without blemish, shown to be the divine Messiah, shown to be the great prophet like Moses. And yet, as Jesus' Galilean ministry closes here, it ends on kind of a low note for the disciples as they end up finally getting rebuked by Jesus. Look at verse 55. He turned and rebuked them. So there's, there's an ascending Messiah and a descending disciples. So we look at the supremacy of Christ, Christ's supremacy and the disciples' failure. Now Luke begins by giving us the setting where we get the time and the place and the participants. Participants. The time is the next day. Presumably the transfiguration happened in the early evening on the mountain. It's, it's possible that they had descended the night before, but I think the most straightforward reading is the next morning they, they come down the mountain, and we find out that while things were taking place on the mountain, other activities were taking place down below in the valley, that while heaven was at work, the mountaintop, the powers of hell have been at work down here. And whereas Jesus is celebrated and receives glory and honor, the disciples have been impotent, powerless, ashamed, I can only imagine. So that's the setting. The time, the next morning, the next day. The place, down in the valley, coming down from the mountain, who's there? Jesus, the apostles, and another regular um, participant in, in Luke's narrative, a great crowd. Now, the great crowd isn't going to do much. They're just here as the context for which the Father speaks out of. And they will marvel at the end. But really, this is an interaction between Jesus and the distressed Father. And from that crowd, we center on, and Luke says, And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. We see a plea for help. You can just imagine the anguish of this father. He has a son who, who knows for how long and for how many years he's been afflicted like this, and he makes the trip, and he comes to meet Jesus, and Jesus isn't there. And so he goes to Jesus' disciples with hope, presumably, and he tells first the condition of his son, his terrible state. He's regularly seized by what he calls an unclean spirit. Um, and behold, a, no, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. 
He's regularly seized by the Spirit, and it causes him to cry out. He's convulsing at the mouth. The word for shattered, it breaks him. He's torn. It throws him to the ground, and it does not leave easily or regularly. Um, Now, the symptoms here uh, follow very closely to a grand mal seizure. And in fact, in Matthew and Luke's gospel, Matthew and Mark's gospel, sorry, um, I believe Matthew actually refers to it as epilepsy. Um, We're not entirely sure what's going on here. It is possible that the demon, there is a demon, Jesus rebukes the spirit, that's clear. And Luke, a physician, would know if we're just dealing with a medical condition. It is possible, however, that this demon also afflicts with the disease. We know that we know that Satan afflicted Job with diseases. And it says not only does Jesus rebuke the spirit in verse 42, but he heals the boy. So we're not sure what the connection between this demon and these seizures are. But what we learn next is that the disciples have been impotent and powerless in addressing this. So he describes the state of his son, Shattered, seized, convulsed. He ends it with, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. So now he turns in desperation to Jesus. One of the other things I love about this, notice he doesn't ask Jesus to heal his son. He just asks Jesus to look at his son. The the word in Greek means to look on with compassion. Why? This man, however... He knows what he knows, believes that if Jesus will simply look on his son, his own compassion, his own power will be at work, and the son will be healed. Just just look at my son. Turn and look upon him in compassion and kindness. I beg you, I beg you to look at my son. This is also the third and final only child that Jesus will deal with and heal in Luke's gospel. If you remember back in chapter uh, 7, Jesus drew near to the town of Nain, and behold, a man who had died was carried, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And then in chapter 8, Jairus' daughter is described in a similar way, where it says he had an only daughter. I think there's a great and profound beauty here. Jesus is described elsewhere in John's gospel as the only begotten, the monogenes, the the unique, one-of-a-kind, and only Son of God. And Jesus is, is emphasized in Luke's gospel three times. This only Son will provide the safety and the remedy and the security and life for these other only children. The God, the Father, knows what it's like to see his only son suffer, or he will when Jesus is on the cross. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus has compassion. Why? Because, because of this only son's death, these only children can be saved. So the father cries out to Jesus. What's interesting, or puzzling rather, is why the disciples were unable to do this. In particular, this is troubling, because look back at the beginning of chapter 9. In this very same chapter that we are studying, Luke explicitly tells us this, and he called to the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So whatever combination, whatever interaction there's going on here between this demon and what looks like potentially epilepsy or seizures, whatever that is, Jesus specifically gave them authority to deal with demons and to cure diseases. And presumably, when he sent them out, they succeeded. Herod heard of their ministry. There's not a word of any failure from Luke's part. Why now, in the same chapter, are they utterly powerless? 
impotent. Every single one of them remaining at the bottom of the mountain, unable to deal with this. You can imagine their shame, their frustration. They've had a reputation, presumably. Herod heard of it. To be able to cast out demons, to be able to heal. In fact, Luke's lack of direct explanation is striking. Both Matthew and Mark deal with this. We're not going to go try to solve that problem there. I'm I am committed to and convinced that Luke, in writing his gospel account, intends to be understood and, and intends to be understood without having to consult other books that may or may not even have been written yet. So if we're going to try to figure out, and I, and I think that's part of Luke's point in how he arranges this text, he does give us an answer. It's just a little more subtle. It's just a little more subtle. But I, I think it explains what follows. We're to see through the disciples' weakness, through the disciples' arrogance, why they were unable to cast out this demon. So, so bear with me. We will get an answer to that question. But it it's, should be ringing in our ears. Only at the beginning of this chapter, explicitly they have the power to deal with this. Here, they cannot. And that then leads to Jesus' response in two parts. First, a response of vexation. Of vexation. Jesus answered. This is what Jesus said in direct response to what the Father said. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Jesus is wearied. Jesus is troubled. Jesus is discouraged by this report from the man. Now we first have to ask, to whom is he speaking? I I don't think directly this man, that Luke gives us nothing in this passage to indicate this father is a man lacking faith. He comes to Jesus and his disciples. His, his plea for help is put in a sympathetic light. Jesus has, after all, done similar things for other only children. Even his cry, just to look on him with mercy, implies faith. His some understanding of who Jesus is. I, I don't think Jesus is rebuking him. I think the rebuke, it's to a generation, lands mostly on the disciples, potentially even the crowds as well. But I think the logic goes something like this. As Jesus learns that his disciples were powerless to do the very thing he had authorized and empowered them to do earlier in the chapter, he knows something is wrong. He knows somehow they've failed. And in response to that news, he let sound his vexation. This is similar, in fact. He's further identifying with Moses. That language of a twisted and faithless generation um, comes from Moses' sort of swan, swan psalm in Deuteronomy 32, where Moses, recounting the history of Israel and writing a song for Israel for them to learn, speaks of them this way in 32.5, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. A little later in verse 20, he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. This great prophet like Moses comes down from the mountain preparing to to head resolutely to Jerusalem to accomplish the exodus. That's the actual word that Moses and Elijah were speaking to him about. The exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. And as he comes down, he encounters this report of his disciples' failure. 
And he voices his vexation, further identifying himself with Moses. His people are similar to the people of Israel that Moses led. They, they are a faithless and perverse people. He goes on even further. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? What Jesus is saying, in essence, is you people really are difficult and in trouble to deal with. Jesus has just been up on the mountain. He has just been wrapping his head around and getting set for his own impending death, rejection, betrayal. And down here in the valley, the disciples are unable to do the very thing he'd commissioned them to do just earlier in this passage. And he expresses his frustration. Again, Moses did this regularly throughout the Old Testament, speaking to God, but what a burden, how challenging it was to lead the people of Israel who were always grumbling, always complaining. And the good news is, as much as Jesus expresses the challenge, the difficulty in leading his people, he will bear with them to the end. John's gospel says he loved them all the way to the end. Jesus does bear with them. In fact, the next accounts show him bearing with them, teaching them, correcting them. Because, as Isaiah 46 says, speaking of God, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, I will bear I will carry and save. Or one of the passages we looked at in our parenting series, Psalm 103, 13 to 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. But just stop and understand for a moment, there's a suffering that Jesus endures on the cross. That is his ultimate suffering, the suffering of being separated from the Father, the Father's wrath poured out on him, bearing our sin. There's the suffering Jesus receives from the hands of his enemies, culminating in the betrayal of Judas. But there's also a suffering on Jesus' part of just dealing with us. (laughs) Think of that. And here Jesus voices that. The New Testament can speak of grieving the Spirit. There is a suffering that that takes place just in dealing with us because we can be faithless and we can be twisted. And here Jesus voices that as well. Now, it's not going to deter him. He's not going to cast them off. He is going to bear with them. But he takes a moment to express his frustration, his displeasure, his tiredness at dealing with his disciples, dealing with people like you and me. But that word of vexation is immediately followed by a word of compassion. Yes, yes, these people are faithless and twisted. Yes, it is a burden and difficult to bear with them. Bring your son here. But that doesn't change who he is. It doesn't change his compassion and his love. Bring your son here. The demon takes this final opportunity and a chance to, to resist. Um, while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus then does three things. He rebuked the unclean spirit, he healed the boy, and he gave him back to his father. One of the things I love, this demon who is so challenging to the apostles, this demon who so tore and broke this boy, we don't even read the demon leaving. Why? Luke has shown us Jesus' power over demons so many times. I think Luke just assumes we know how the story ends. Once Jesus rebukes the demon, it's game over. Of course the demon leaves. There's, there's no recording of Jesus rebuked the demon. And Luke's writing it, and you know what happened, right? That such is the power of our Lord's word. In every instance, as he speaks, creation obeys 
It's the same way that he um, exercised the demon in chapter 4. And the people were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. And the the demoniac with legion, the, the thousand plus demons in him, again, Jesus speaks, the demons flee into the pigs. This isn't some showdown. Sometimes we like to picture the powers of hell and the powers of heaven as if they're in this complicated chess match or arm wrestling match. And God's gonna win, but it's gonna be close. That is not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is of a sovereign and all-powerful God. And when he speaks, his enemies obey. If you read the book of Revelation, when Jesus returns to earth, how does he defeat his enemies, the entire nations of the world gathered to fight against him? He opens his mouth, and he fights against them with the sword of his mouth. He speaks. It's really kind of anticlimactic in one sense. You've got all these armies assembled, and he rides in on a white horse, the robe dipped in blood, and the armies line up, and there is no battle because he speaks and it is over. His word possesses authority. He possesses authority. He healed the boy, and I love this last bit. He gave him back to his father. I mean, just how wonderful is that? Jesus has compassion for this man. He returned. It's the same language used with the widow um, in, in 7.15. The dead man set up, began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. I mean, just marvel and wonder at the compassion of our Lord, even as he is discouraged and tired and a little frustrated with his apostles, with this crowd. He is kind and loving to this individual, to this father, to this son. He gives him back to him. Which leads then to the people's response. The people's response, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. Which is another thing that's remarkable. There's diff- God can reveal his glory in different ways. We've just seen Jesus on the mountaintop, his face glowing. Moses and Elijah testifying, a great cloud coming in. God the Father speaking from the cloud. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And we, we read in Luke chapter 9 that they beheld his glory. When they became fully awake, verse 32, they saw his glory. So it's a glory of one kind, a glory revealed, a glory like that of the second coming. But here, even down in the valley, even facing the powers of hell, God's glory is on display as he rules his creation. Peter uses that same word to speak of actually the transfiguration. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter, getting ready to explain the authority and the foundation for what he teaches, says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. Same word. For when he received glory and honor from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So as dissimilar as these two accounts are, what is similar, what, what, what is consistent through both of them is Jesus' glory is put on display. That's what I was saying. Sometimes Jesus' glory is put on display just through who he is and the glory as, as the Father's delighted in Son. But even in this suffering and even in this dark place and even in the disciples' failure, there is Jesus' glory to be seen as well. And the people respond with astonishment at the majesty of God. Now, Jesus then interrupts this scene. You could just end it right there, couldn't he? 
Luke could just end it right there. Jesus, Jesus, they marveled at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at what he was doing, Jesus said to the disciples, you see, now Jesus has to address their failure. And now, in point two, we are going to see the disciples' failure extended and explained. Extended and explained. Extended in that their failure will progress. They will go from doing poorly to doing worse. But Luke, in telling it this way, I think gives us the explanation why they are unable to cast the demon out, why things are going poorly like this, what's going on. So let's just read um, 43b to 45. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Notice the emphatic nature of that. He's repeating himself. He's repeating what he said earlier. And even the way he says it, I think, gives us some link to what's going on. Let these words sink into your ears. Does that sound at all familiar to anything Jesus has said just a chapter or two ago in Luke? Turn back to Luke chapter 8, where I think we're going to find the solution to what's going on. So we'll be going back and forth from 8 to 9 to 8 to 9. You remember that chapter 8 starts a new program in Jesus' ministry. You've got a new summary of what's been going on. And then we get the introduction of parables. And Jesus tells the parable of the sower. And as he finishes the parable of the sower in verse 8, he cries out and says this, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. To me, that sounds kind of similar to let these words sink into your ears. And then we get an explanation of the parable of the sower and further um, words of exhortation all center around hearing. So verse 11, the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who when they hear the word receive it with joy. But these have no roots. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. As for what fell among the thorns, there are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of the world, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold fast. Then he jumps down to the um, parable of a lamp under a jar. Look at verse 18. Take care then how you hear. For the one who has more will be given to the one who does not, even when he thinks he has, will be taken away. Let these words sink into your ears. I think he's linking us back to that. I think the principles that he laid out there of how this works and how hearing works and what the consequences of hearing works are to explain what's going on. So he repeats himself emphatically and then tells them the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Which is nearly the same thing he said back in chapter 9, what set up this whole passage and why I think this is central. This is Where does this, where does this whole section of Luke start? It starts with Jesus praying. He asks them, who am I? They tell him, you're the Christ of God. Then he said to them in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day raised again. What Luke's showing us here, the way Jesus says this, is they didn't get it. They didn't, they didn't believe it. They didn't understand. That's why he has to repeat himself. Just as the crowd's marveling, just as their potential embarrassment and shame is lifting, oh, okay, we finally succeeded, Jesus interrupts that. While the crowd's still astonished, he goes over to his disciples, let this sink into your ears, guys. Which tells me, in part, 
This is meant to explain, this, this paragraph here is meant to explain what's been going on. Jesus was dismayed when he heard of the disciples' failure. And then, while the crowd's astonished, he goes over and, guys, listen, pay attention, let this sink in. The Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men, presumably because they didn't understand it. In fact, Luke goes on to say that's exactly the case. But they did not understand the saying. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Go back to chapter 8. Does that sound similar? Chapter 8, verse 9. Jesus spoke his parable of the sower. They didn't understand. But what did they do? The disciples asked him what the parable meant. How did Jesus respond? To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, hearing they may not understand. So Jesus, back in chapter 8, says, you guys are blessed. God's granted you to know these things. Others don't see so that they won't understand. And then Luke uses similar language to describe what's going on right now with the disciples. They didn't understand the saying, for it, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. They're afraid to ask him about this. So Jesus says there's two types of people. There's those who are blessed to receive and understand the secrets of the kingdom, and then there are those who are being by some other force blinded so that they won't understand. And then Luke tells us that that is now in part where the disciples are at. I thought these were the guys who were granted to know the secrets of the kingdom, and here they're actually being blinded to not know things, and and Jesus tells us that that those are two types of people in this world, those with ears to hear, and those who are blinded and hardened. What is going on? What is going on? Disciples, oh, I think it all hinges on what Jesus says to them. What's going on is this. His mission is not one of honor, but of rejection. His mission is not one of honor, but of rejection. Consequently, his disciples' mission will be one not of honor, but of suffering. Remember, all the way back to the Sermon on the Plain, there's two types of people in this world, people that men speak well of, and there are people who are rejected. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to die. You guys are all going to follow suit if you're my real disciples. I I think what happened is this. In the beginning of chapter 9, the disciples do not yet know about the suffering of Jesus. They don't know about his rejection. They don't know about that. They also don't know that his disciples will be following in his steps. So Jesus empowers them. They've been faithful to what they know. He says some things they don't understand, but they come and ask. And as they ask, grace is given. This is is what Jesus says back in chapter 8 in verse um, 18. The one who has, more will be given. From the one who does not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. So they they, they ask, and they're given. They're given more understanding. But then Jesus reveals to them in chapter 9, he's going to suffer. He's going to die. Now there, there's no mention of it being hidden from them. There, there's no mention of, of them being blinded. But what we see in the rest of Luke 
is they didn't get that. And now, having rejected that, that's the next point, lacking faith, not believing when Jesus told them back earlier in chapter 9, not believing it, not accepting it, not embracing it. Now they're, it is hidden from them. That's, that's the principle that Jesus lays out in the parable of the sower. It's the principle he lays out in the parable of the lamp. The birds will come and take the seed from the road. So he told them, in chapter 9, verses 21 through 27, they didn't believe it. They didn't accept it. The reason why I think that's the case is Luke then highlights their refusal to accept that. So Jesus tells them, contrary to what they expect, that even though they're his disciples, they're not going to initially receive glory and honor. There, there will be a glory and honor that comes. When the Son of Man comes in his glory with his angels, then there'll be a glory. Then there'll be a repayment. Then there'll be honor. For now, there's crosses and there's shame. What's the very next thing Luke shows the disciples doing after this in verse 46? An argument arose about them about which one of them was the greatest. You guys couldn't even cast out the demon. What are, you, what are you doing arguing about who's the greatest? What do they do next? John, verse 49. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Quit making us look bad. The very thing they just failed at doing, somebody else is doing, but because they're not with them, you need to stop. And then... When the disciples experienced some rejection of their own, even though Jesus told them how to respond to those who spitefully use you, even though Jesus told them how to turn the other cheek, how to love your enemies, how to do good to those who spitefully misuse you. Verse 49, oh sorry, no, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up into heaven, he set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? They turned and rebuked them. Do you think the disciples get rejection? Do you think the disciples get this new principle of honor? No, Luke highlights that. So Jesus had just told them, I'm not going to receive honor. I'm going to be rejected, suffer, and die. You're going to follow after me. You're going to pick up your cross. You're going to deny yourself. You're going to be mistreated by men, spitefully used on my account, and the disciples reject that. They're still holding on to their understanding of honor, their understanding of the privileges that come with the power of God. And because they're holding on to that, and they don't believe it, even what they had is taken from them. What they could have done, what they are able to do earlier in chapter 9, they can no longer do. I think that's the explanation that Luke's showing us. Because he's got nothing else to give us. He's got no further explanations. It's too striking for me. The language here in verses 43b through 45 recount, echo the languages of the parable of the sower, the, the principle of parables. It, it's got all those principles in place. And then, scene after scene after scene, showing the disciples still trying to fight for honor and glory and respect, still trying to, to be on their team. And you're not on our team, so you need to stop doing that. And, and you reject us, you can die. Call down fire just like Elijah did. 
They're still living in the principle and the economy of Jesus' second coming. They're still living like they're expecting Jesus to do what Jesus will do in the book of Revelation, not in his first coming. Jesus gave them a word about suffering. Here's the blanks. Lacking faith was hidden from them. They were unwilling to suffer dishonor and rejection. They're unwilling to suffer dishonor and rejection. I mean, these guys just, just fell on their faces and, and, and failed publicly. They couldn't do the very thing Jesus authorized them to do at the beginning of the chapter. And yet, what did they do? Even as Jesus comes over and kind of rebukes them, let this sink. I mean, when you do that with your kids, you're, you're kind of, there's a little rebuke. Listen to me, pay attention. And what did they learn from that? Hey, which one of us is the greatest? I mean, come on. Could, could Luke highlight any further just how much they don't get it? They, they, they won't let go of these principles of honor. And so even what they had is taken from them. There's another tragic point here. You know, them being ignorant is, is okay. Back in chapter 8, turn back there again, back in chapter 8, Jesus gave the parable of the sower. They didn't understand. They didn't get it. But what did they do? They asked him what the parable meant. He told them. Jesus didn't rebuke him. Jesus didn't scold him. He didn't say, why didn't you guys get this? It's not too hard. He said, actually praised and blessed them. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to others it's in parables. Now Jesus, they've just failed royally. Jesus then gives them a further little rebuke. Guys, listen up. Pay attention. Let this sink into your ears. Making it clear, this is important. They don't understand but they wouldn't humble themselves to ask Jesus what he meant. Why not? Well, it's kind of hard to argue either you're the greatest of the 12 if you're the one who had to admit you didn't know what he meant. Huh? It's kind of hard to be pursuing your own glory and humble yourself. It's not like Jesus rebuked them last time they asked. Jesus blessed them, welcomed them in, told them. And so, yes, the text makes it clear at this point already they're being blinded, but there's nothing stopping them from asking except their own pride. They're afraid. What are they afraid of? They're afraid of looking silly. They're afraid of looking more foolish. Consequently, they look a lot more foolish and a lot more silly as they act shamefully, arguing about who's going to be the greatest of them. One commentator puts it this way. They cannot, that they cannot comprehend is rooted in their failure thus far to fully embrace the new view of the world that is the content of Jesus' proclamation, a world in which conventional perspectives of honor and shame and on the meaning of suffering in relation to God's purpose are subverted. Because they have not adopted this view of the world, they cannot really understand Jesus' identity and mission. And not understanding Jesus, they cannot rightly understand the nature of their own discipleship as becomes abundantly clear in verses 46 through 50. So I think that's the reason why they failed. So what do we get from that? We get, I think, one significant point. Here's the box at the bottom. If we, are un- if we likewise are unwilling to embrace God's plan for suffering, rejection, and self-denial, we too will be spiritually powerless. They, they weren't willing to embrace that. They, they weren't willing to accept that. They weren't willing to wrap their heads around that. I want honor now. I want vengeance now. 
I want privilege now. And they were powerless to do something earlier in the chapter they could do. I think the same thing holds true for us. We've been told that the, the, the cross comes before the crown, that the disciple is not greater than his teacher, that first Peter tells us we're to follow in his footsteps. And Peter gets this, by the way. Peter, um, by the time he writes the first epistle, gets this. In First Peter chapter 1, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There's a glory, there's an honor. It's in heaven and it's waiting for you. What about right now? Ready to reveal in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and honor and glory of the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a purpose in suffering. Paul gets this, right? Paul's commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and then he spends a few years in a Roman jail. Does he sulk? Does he get mad? Then he hears there are other people out there preaching Christ, and some of them are doing it simply to put dirt in his face, to rub it in his poke him in the eye. And he says, I rejoice, whether in pretense or sincerity Christ is preached, I rejoice. See, Paul, Paul got that. Paul got that. God has a purpose in our suffering. And this is what's important because in America, we're, we're not likely in this church to, to, to buy into the prosperity gospel that God wants you rich and you know, driving around with Rolls Royce. But I think if we're not careful, we can buy into the prosperity gospel light. Hey, if we're faithful, we come to church, we help out in Juana, we do our devotions, life will be bump-free. No, we won't be rich, but we'll be financially stable. And we won't have to deal with real suffering and real rejection and real self-denial. We won't have to deal with those things. And, then, and we find out that we've bought into the prosperity gospel light when those things happen, when the sickness comes, when the job is lost, when the suffering comes. And we go, Why? You've been a good little boy or girl. Why? And then we have the dual suffering of not only dealing with what's coming into our life, but this confusion and angst towards God. Why? I thought you loved me. I thought you cared for me. Why would you let this happen? If we're unwilling, likewise, to embrace God's plan for suffering, rejection, and self-denial, we too, like the disciples, will be spiritually powerless. And further, we will not be following Jesus I just want to close by reading Jesus' emphatic words, what, what packages this whole thing, that they need to get it into their heads, and we likewise need to get it into our heads. Look, look, at, look at verse 23 through 27. He said to all, which would include everyone in this room, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits and loses himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory. It's good to want honor and glory. Just want the right honor and glory that comes when Jesus returns. Don't fight for it now. Don't try to avoid suffering now because you'll ensure suffering then. Be willing to pour out your life. Be willing to pick up your cross. Don't think that you have better rights than your Savior. It's essential 
The disciples were doing so well. Take two steps back here. Now they'll recover, and we can recover, but it's important for us to understand, especially as we draw near to the Lord's table. Um, So I'd like to call the ushers forward now as you prepare for communion. And while they come forward, I just want to take a moment in quiet contemplation. The Apostle Paul warns us not to come to this table in an unworthy way. He warns us of that. Saying this, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let's just have a moment of quiet, silent respect. You can deal with your sin now. You can bring it before the Lord. You can... You can have a cleansed heart. Maybe you're even here this morning and you don't know the Lord. You can cry out to Christ in faith like this father. Jesus, look on me with compassion. You can trust in him to be the one who bore your sin. You can look to his life and his death and his resurrection for your life. In him, you can find forgiveness of your sins. This table that we're about to approach, this memorial meal is for those who know the risen Lord. There's a great warning that Paul gives for those who would approach it in an unworthy way. Let's just take a moment and deal with our own hearts before the Lord.